Good morning. It's great to be with you all this morning and to get to open up God's Word with you. Before I jump into the passage that we're going to be looking at, I did want to introduce myself uh, again and tell you a little bit about our ministry. My name is Adam Venable, and I'm the RUF campus minister at UAB. That means I do college ministry on the campus of UAB, which has about 22,000 students in the heart of Birmingham. We are uh, beginning our fourth week of ministry this spring, and so we're in the middle of Bible studies on the book of Ruth and the book of Galatians. We have an evangelistic Bible study going on. This spring, I have broke from my normal pattern of preaching through books of the Bible. That's what I normally do, and, and, and instead doing a short series on dating and relationships and the gospel, and Last week, even for uh, MLK Junior Day, we uh, broke from that and did a week on Christian social justice, and uh, that was probably the most nerve-wracking sermon that I've ever preached, I think. I um, just went into it with a lot of fear and trembling, so you can pray for us and pray for me as we seek to really apply the good news of Jesus to the issues that we face on campus at UAB. Um, we currently have three full-time staff uh, members, myself and two full-time interns, Emily Benson and Josh Harper. Emily's a graduate of Mississippi State and Josh of uh, Sanford. And we're even praying for, um, oh, I, I should mention, we also have a fourth coming in the fall. And we're also praying for a fifth staff person in the next few years. UAB is 20% African-American students. And so... We are praying and longing that the Lord would raise up an African-American that loves Jesus and loves UAB students and that we could labor alongside uh, there on campus for the spread of the gospel. Our mission at UAB is that students would either begin a personal relationship with Christ or grow in their relationship with Christ. And so um, what we do on campus is we champion the gospel. We champion the good news both in word and in deed. To that end, that we would see every part of UAB connected with the good news and loved well. And uh, what can you do? Please pray for us. I already mentioned um, we need prayer for the Lord to provide this fifth staff person the next couple of years. You can pray that the hearts and minds of students would be affected. Nothing that we say or do has any effect unless the Holy Spirit softening hearts and opening eyes and digging out ears so that people can hear the gospel. Um, we need your generosity. You can come on a Thursday night and bring cookies or donuts or drinks. Every Thursday night at 7.30, we have our largest Bible study on campus. And we'd love to have you, get to meet you, and you could uh, get to know and love on our students some. Um, we need financial giving. We have a, um, over a $110,000 budget, and we're, we're always in need of people who want to give financially to our ministry. So... I'd love to talk to you about any of that after the service. Please come find me. Thank you again for having me this morning. I do want to transition now to the passage that we're going to be looking at, Acts chapter 2 and verses 42 to 47. I should say, too, that this time yesterday, I wasn't sure if I'd be here this morning. Uh, I nearly lost my voice from um, just talking too much last week, and so... Thank you for your patience with my voice this morning. But we're in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. I don't know where you spent the Christmas holiday. I spent Christmas at the beach 
but the first time ever we were at Port St. Joe, Florida. And of course, normally a, a beautiful, beautiful place, and there's still a lot there that is beautiful. However, you might remember that Port St. Joe was one of the towns heaviest hit by the hurricane. And so while we were down there for Christmas, I was just struck with the devastation and despair that I saw in people's eyes. And it looked like the people who were still there, they were just in survival mode. They weren't making, they weren't making big plans for the year. Um, they were trying to get through this week. That's what they were hoping to do, the people there in Port St. Joe. And one more story about survival mode. I was reading a newspaper article about the opioid crisis going on in America right now, and they, they were interviewing a young woman who had been addicted to opioids, but had gotten clean and was now reflecting on her addiction. And she said this that I thought was... Um, just profound, that when she was in the midst of the addiction, she had no joy, and she had no sense of purpose in her life. Because again, she said she felt like she was in survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, you don't have any joy, and you do tend to uh, lose your sense of purpose. Now, none of you may have been affected by the hurricane or the opioid crisis, although maybe you have. But I imagine that all of you know what it's like to feel like you're in survival mode. Uh, I don't have big plans for the year. Uh, I'm trying to make it through today That's, or this week. That's what I'm trying to do. And it is easy to lose your joy um, and to lose your sense of purpose. If that's you this morning, the passage that we're looking at is really especially for you. Acts chapter 2, uh, written by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And we really want to try and answer the question, who am I supposed to be? Um, when we answer that question, who am I supposed to be, it's there that we can find joy and find purpose in our life. And so look with me in Acts chapter 2, and this is what God's word says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that the words of my mouth now and the meditations of all of our hearts together would be centered on your Son, the Lord Jesus. Teach us who we're supposed to be so that we can experience gladness and feel like what we do really matters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So who am I supposed to be? What are the obstacles? And then how can I become who, am I, who I'm supposed to be? Who am I supposed to be? And really three things here. And the first is that we're supposed to be glad. It says that they received their food with, with, with glad and generous hearts. And 
This gladness, it's not just that the food tastes good or that they're excited to eat it or that they were hungry and they finally got something to eat. Those are all good things. But when the Bible talks about gladness, it means something more specific having to do with our relationship with God. Glad is different than excited. Excitement is what you feel when you do the roller coaster, when you eat that piece of candy, uh, that chocolate cake at Bottega, downtown Birmingham, or Nikki's West or wherever you like to go. That's excitement. And there's nothing wrong with excitement. Uh, excitement is good. But that's different from what the first Christians experienced. And it's different from what God really made you to be. You were made to have gladness. Something much more profound and deeper than excitement. It's what the first Christians experienced. And I want you to think about this, that isn't it true that the harder life gets, the easier it is to grow bitter and just to go on to get along? Here's my to-do list. Here's the things I got to do. I just got to grit my teeth and make it through today. No one had a right to feel that more than first century Christians. There's no Amazon. There was no no convenience of the grocery store. There was no health care to speak of. Uh, The law enforcement wasn't as good as it is today. If anyone had a right to be bitter, it was first century Christians. Is is the book of Acts just a book about people who had it good all the time? Stephen, who was stoned to death. Paul, who was left for dead not once, but many times. The first century Christians had it hard. Um, Just like you feel like your life is hard sometimes. And yet it says they were glad. How could they be glad? And they were glad because they had hope. There's always gladness where there's hope. That's what the message of the gospel is all about, is that you now have an unshakable hope that's deeper than your circumstances because you can still be glad when you're angry. You can still be glad when you feel guilty. You can still be glad when you feel lonely or ashamed because gladness is the way we experience all of those things with the hope of the gospel. The first century Christians were angry. They were angry about the oppression they, were, they, they experienced. They were angry about a world that didn't know the gospel, and they wanted them to know the gospel. They were sad when Stephen was, was stoned to death, but they still had gladness because they had hope. And with hope, the bedrock of gladness is unshakable. Who am I supposed to be? I'm also supposed to be generous And you see this over and over again in this passage. They had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions. And they're breaking bread together. And God is adding to their number. Who am I supposed to be? I'm supposed to be the kind of person that not only exists to meet my own needs. I've got to eat and breathe and work and have companionship. But God's word says that you're supposed to be someone who is generous, who doesn't exist primarily for for your own needs, but for the needs of others. The same is true of our RUF. This is something I tell students all the time at UAB. We don't get together as the body of Christ primarily to have our needs met. But we are here to be the body of Christ for one another and for the world that we live in, for our community. 
We're not here to have our favorite kind of worship music or to have our favorite social functions or to do all things according to our preferences, but we're here to be generous and to live for the good of others, for the spread of the gospel, both in word and in deed. Who am I supposed to be? I'm supposed to be generous. And this really gets to the heart of, of the question that we all ask, and that is this. Does anything I do really matter? It's so easy to go through the things you've got to do for your children or your parents or school or your church. Um, again, the to-do list. Does any of it really matter? Don't you long for the things that you do to matter in the deepest, most profound sense? That it's, there's, there's a reason behind it all. And what God's word says is that you matter because God made you to be generous, to live out of the passion of your heart, not just the bitterness of trying to grip my teeth and get the to-do list done, but to live out of gladness and hope and to be generous. And God promises that that is why you matter, because he made you that way. To love, be generous for others. Who am I supposed to be finally connected And again, this is all over this passage. We are not primarily a he or a she, but we're a them. That's what Luke says here. We are not uh, my own personal relationship with God, but we're a fellowship. We're meant to do this thing together, God's word says here. And that means that we're meant to have meaningful, regular relationships with each other. And this was not intuitive to me growing up. I can remember sitting through church when I was uh, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. And as the last song was played during church, I was so excited because it meant that I could run out of the church building, get away from everyone in the room, and get to my car as fast, that I, as, fast as I could. I would make sure and grab the car keys from my mother, run out of the church pew, hoping Um, that no one was going to stop and try and talk to me as I ran out of the building to my car. It was not intuitive to me that life should be lived together with other people. And we suffer because of that, don't we? Um, It's so easy for us to live our lives disconnected and not connected. And you can do that even in church. You can come to church and participate and then go home and live a completely anonymous life where no one knows you and you don't know anybody else. And when I I mean no, I mean I know more about you than whether you're for that football team or this football team. But I know the things that that you long for. Who am I supposed to be? I'm supposed to be someone deeply and profoundly connected to other people. And this is beyond just romantic uh, relationships that you might have with a spouse or something like that. You can live a deeply connected life and never be married, right? That's what Jesus experienced. No one ever lived a more connected life, a, a life where he felt known and where he knew others more than Jesus, never married. We were meant to live connected and This is what I want to ask you now is, how would 2019 be different if you began to think of yourself? And who am I supposed to be more in terms of what God says you should be? There's what Instagram says you should be. 
And there's what Fox News and CNN says you should be. And there's what all the other authorities in your life say you should be. What if you started listening to God and his word more? This year, what difference would it make if you began to think of yourself, God, you made me to be glad. I, I can't remember the last time I was glad, but you've said you made me to be that way. And that you've made me to be generous, not just to get through the to-do list, but to be generous and to be connected. I've been alone for a long time. I'm tired of it. 2019 is going to be different. What are a few of the obstacles to, to being who God made us to be? And I think you can put these into two different categories of obstacles. There are irreligious, uh, religion-less, rebellious obstacles, and there are religious obstacles to being who God made you to be. And what's an irreligious obstacle to being glad? And it's really the, the, the counterfeit. It's kind of the Diet Coke version of, of gladness, which is what? It's really lust. Lust, which is excitement, which has gone bad. Um, you know, when you're a child, you basically do things for two reasons, either because it's exciting or because your parents want you to do it. As you grow up into adulthood, you realize that some things which are exciting are not good for me. Uh, that whole bag of Skittles, that looks exciting to me. It would not be good for me. And lust is really the counterfeit of gladness. Uh, lust is never satisfied. It never experiences deep joy about anything, right? Because once lust gets that piece of candy, and it's, it, it, the idea is that if I can just get that, then it'll satisfy my lust. But, but what happens when you get that? It's not satisfied. It wants more and more and more and more. That's the first obstacle to gladness, is that we settle for the counterfeit of lust. What's an obstacle to generosity? And I think it's fear. Um, when I first got to UAB, a professor who was a Christian told me that the thing that UAB students struggle the most with is fear. They are afraid. Afraid of losing their scholarship. Afraid of disappointing mom and dad. Afraid of uh, him breaking up with me or her breaking up with me, afraid that I'm, I'm going to be alone forever. And when you are afraid, when you live in fear, you cannot be generous. There's no generosity where people are overcome with fear. How about religious obstacles? And I think that the religious obstacle to, to gladness is just is power plays. You know what I mean by power plays? And that's where you live your whole life trying to be smarter than the other guy, stronger than the other guy, uh, prettier than the other person, and where everything that you say is just based on trying to get power and control over the other person. And, and you live paranoid that, that you won't be in control, that you're going to lose control. And when you live like that, you cannot experience gladness. You're not ever thankful for anything because, again, you're, you live in fear of, lose, of losing your power, of losing your control, of losing your influence. You can't be glad for yourself or glad for anybody else because you're overcome by fear, and you just want power and control. And it could be religious power and religious control. Um, you can think about people in our country who are overwhelmed. Their one passion is religious especially conservative religious power. 
and there's no gladness to it, and there's no hope of the gospel to it. There's no love there because they're overcome with just remaining in power. You can never be glad or generous if that is your passion in life. And what's another religious obstacle to uh, especially being connected? You ever had a period in your life where you were going to church every Sunday, but you just never felt connected? You just never felt connected to other people. And I think it's because ritual is our greatest obstacle to having fellowship together. If you grew up in church like I did, this is what I've done my whole life. And it's so easy to come and to never get to know anyone. Again, beyond your favorite football team or like whether you like chocolate donuts or the ones with sprinkles on them. But to really know people, religiousness and ritual is our biggest obstacle to overcome. And just like I asked you, how would 2019 be different? Um, I'll ask you the same question. How would 2019 be different if nothing changes in your life? Um, That feeling that you've got no energy to to be glad or generous. Like, Adam, here are the things I got to do and the energy that I have to do them. And you're asking me to do like 9,000 other things. Like, I don't have the resources or the inner energy to do any of that. How's 2019 going to look if nothing changes, like status quo? The things that have plagued you these years, uh, what if you just continue to lie down in them? Man, it's going to be a hard year, won't it? And what God's word is calling us to look towards is something away from ourself. And that's what I'll say finally is, how can I become who I'm supposed to be? I'm supposed to be generous and glad and connected. And I feel like I don't have what it takes to do any of that. I don't know how to be connected. Um, I feel like I need to go back to kindergarten to learn how to have a real relationship with someone. Or I feel like I need to go back to first grade to learn what joy is. I, I don't even know what that is. How can we get it? And it's through the good news, right? What is the good news for you if you feel like you don't belong here, that you don't really feel connected with anyone? There's this thing that Luke talks about in this passage, and it's the apostles' teaching, or it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to prayer. What's the apostles' teaching? And I'm pro-worldview, pro-worldview. If you go look up on RUF's website, one of our goals is a biblical world and life view. However, What God gives you in the gospel is so much more than a worldview. What God gives you in Jesus is a person, a human being with blood and bones and sweat and hair who died on the cross. He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And it's a person that can make you become who God made you to be. Not a worldview, but a person, fully God and fully man. He was treated as one who didn't belong. God made us to belong and to be connected. And Jesus, in the church of his day, was treated as one who did not belong. And if ever there was a man who was not prepared to become disconnected, because he had lived in eternal fellowship with his father and 
and with the Holy Spirit. On the cross, Jesus felt like he had become disconnected from God. All that shame and guilt and disconnectedness that you feel when you think about going to church or even being in church, Jesus felt that. He felt profoundly disconnected. And so you can talk to him about it. You can tell him about the loneliness and the fear you feel when, because you feel so disconnected in, in relationships. Jesus knows what that feels like. He knows exactly what it feels like. So you can tell it to him. You can talk to him about it. The second thing is that Jesus' life was lived in devotion to the word of God. It says here that they, this community, they devoted themselves to prayer and to the apostles' teaching. What's the good news for you? if you feel like you've got no energy to devote yourself to God's word. The good news is that Jesus lived a life that you couldn't live. Jesus lived a life always devoted to God's word, always devoted to his Father, so that in him we have been accepted just the way that we are. You're the kind of person that is not devoted to God's word. Well, you're the kind of person that Jesus died for. He died for sinners like you. The next thing is that in Jesus, the generosity of God is on full display to us. You feel like you've got no energy or resources to be generous. Like, Adam, I'm just trying to get through the day. I've got no energy to be generous. In Jesus Christ, God has been generous to you who have no generosity. Did Jesus live a life for himself? Um, did Jesus live a life just for his tribe, or just for his nation? Jesus lived a life so that he could say to his apostles, I want you to go to the ends of the earth. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, and I want you to go out to every nation and to every tribe and to every tongue, because I've come to die and to rise, to give my generosity to everybody. His promise is that if we will go to Jesus, he will help us to be generous just like him. No one more generous than the Lord Jesus. And finally, no one lived a life more glad than Jesus Christ. And that might be a little counterintuitive. I mean, he, he died a death that was uh, more horrible, likely, than any of us will ever experience. He experienced persecution on a level that maybe none of us will ever experience. How could he live a life of gladness? The Bible says that it was because of the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Jesus had an unshakable joy. So that even on the cross, as he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He also, uh, his hope remained steadfast so that he could say, into your hands I commit my spirit. Why were the apostles, why were the first Christians so devoted to getting together and being the body of Christ together? It was because when they got together and they devoted themselves to God's word, when they prayed together, they found good news. The good news about who they're supposed to be. And so as we, as we close this morning, I would just invite you to pray with me. Let's go to Christ and ask him to teach us who we're supposed to be so we can have joy uh, and live a life that really matters for his kingdom. Let's pray together.